0: P.F.K. in Los Angeles. This is living in the U.S.A. I'm John Weiner, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, California moved one step closer to universal health care on January 1st when it expanded coverage to all low-income residents, regardless of immigration status. Sasha Abramsky will report. Also, Adam Schatz will talk about Franz Fanon, whose books Wretched of the Earth and Black Skin White Masks made him a huge figure on the left, not just in the 60s when they were published, but in the era of Black Lives Matter, when his shadow looms larger than ever. Now he's the subject of Adam's new book, The Rebel's Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Franz Fanon. Adam is US editor of the London Review of Books. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. This will go down as the week the Trump meltdown began. That's what Michael Tomaski says. He's editor of The New Republic. I wonder if you agree. Here's, Here's what his argument is. The legal judgments plus Nikki Haley are driving Trump crazy, His mental decline will only accelerate under this pressure, and Haley is highlighting that in her campaign. Uh, Some of the evidence after that E. Jane Carroll trial award of $80 million, Trump sent 37 tweets that afternoon. After he won the New Hampshire primary, he won. Let me emphasize, he was the winner. He sent angry tweets until 2.30 in the morning, and the last one was, she didn't come in second, she came in last, all caps. He certainly is going to beat Haley in the South Carolina primary uh, on February 24th, but then right almost the next week, if the schedule holds, he'll face Jack Smith's prosecutors in a Washington courtroom on uh, March 4th. Of course, that might be postponed. So Trump Trump will be winning primaries, which is Uh, inside the world of the Republican Party faithful while out in the real world, he's losing in court and uh, under a lot of pressure, and he's not going to get better. And now his mental condition is going to be fair game for Nikki Haley. Uh, Michael Tomaski says he's in a self-reinforcing downward spiral into the quicksand of his cankered soul, close quote. wonder how much
1: of this you agree with. Uh, I agree with the uh, cankered soul, certainly. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Michael is a friend of mine. Uh, and uh, I, I certainly hope that what he wrote uh, uh, comes to pass. The, the, the question really is, will all of this matter to voters? Uh, and that's, that's not really clear because there's already not, not even just within the maga universe but beyond that there is a a, a sort of understanding that trump is kind of nuts and kind of impulsive and not someone you would invite to your kids uh confirmation or bar mitzvah or what have you <laughs> okay. uh but um th- we understand that and uh, he you know he's still a forceful uh guy who presided over an economy which uh, at the time looked pretty good. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure that that's going to be the case, unfortunately, A. And B, you know, none of this takes into account how effectively or ineffectively Joe Biden will campaign. And so, uh, you know, Biden often says, I don't have to be, the, you know, the best guy out there. I just have to be better than the one I'm running against. And uh, everything that Michael writes, probably in terms of Trump's mental condition, uh, is true. But the question is, will people view that uh, as uh, disqualifying if, if he's running against Joe Biden? Trump's
0: appeal is mostly his angry, uh, vengeful persona. But if there's an issue on which he seems to be ahead of Biden, it's the border. Uh, immigration. This is what the polls tell us, the only one of Trump's issues uh, that really has has traction. It seems though that Trump is doing Biden a massive favor on the border issue. The president has been backing a really bad immigration bill that will further divide Democrats if it were to become law, and Trump is trying to kill it and succeeding. Joe Biden basically wants to, he has said he wants to shut down the border. This is in exchange for getting Republican support for aid to Ukraine. Uh, Biden released a statement on Friday calling the bill uh, up in the House, the toughest and fairest set of reforms to secure the border we've ever had in our country. It would give me as president a new emergency authority to shut down the border, when it becomes overwhelmed, and if given that authority, I would use it the day I signed the bill into law, close quote. I mean, that's basically what Trump says uh, he will do. Uh, If this bill actually were to pass, it would be a huge win for the Republicans in an election year, and it contains nothing for Democrats, for example, nothing about uh, dreamers. But despite this, Trump and his supporters, especially in the House, are doing everything they can to kill this bill, and instead, their project is to uh, impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. What do you think of the immigration situation in politically right now?
1: I'm not sure that what Trump is doing actually helps Biden. Uh, if, if the status, what, what, what Trump is doing and what the Republican House is clearly determined to do is simply maintain the status quo on the border. And as you pointed out initially the status quo on the border is the issue on which the uh Trump advantage over Biden is the greatest. So, uh A, B, I'm not so sure uh, despite all the rotten things that are in the bill and all the good things that are not in the bill, how much this would actually divide the Democrats since they do understand that, you know, this is their single greatest vulnerability as witnessed by the fact that you have Democratic mayors of all political persuasions, not just Eric Adams, but Brandon Johnson in Chicago, who was elected as the labor left candidate, saying you've got to do something about the border, and and so uh, you know I, I I think this is a this is a real problem, and one thing that illustrates the depth of this problem right now there is this almost civil war like standoff between the state of Texas. And the federal government as to who will control certain swaths of the the Rio Grande border, and the Supreme Court has made very clear uh, in a re- in a ruling last week that this fell under the jurisdiction of federal law, not state law. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott has, you know, nonetheless kept the Texas National Guard armed on the uh, you know uh, on the contested terrain, keeping out the the federal agents, and so if this were a normal political situation, Biden would just, uh, you know, push this to a point where uh, Abbott would have to give in. The fact that he isn't doing that suggests the just the level of democratic vulnerability and his own vulnerability were he to do that, you know, the Republicans would, would say, you know, he's, he's working to make the border even more porous or more open or what have you. And, uh, the fact that he's not suggests his vulnerabilities. So I don't think Trump is doing and the Mike Johnson and the Republican House are doing Joe Biden any favor by not passing the bill, which is yet to actually uh, come, come to the floor of the Senate. It's just something that has been negotiated by some Republican and Democratic senators. I, I think he pays a price that is probably even a little higher if the bill doesn't pass, Biden does, than if it does.
0: We could use a president who would give us some coherent straight talk about what actually is going on at the border. I mean, the long-term fact here is that NAFTA decimated the subsistence farmers of southern Mexico, Uh, so there's a huge push factor of of, uh, growing poverty in Mexico, and also... All the political instability of Central America that has followed in the wake of uh, of Reagan's wars, uh, but there are also pull factors. Wages are very high in the United States right now, even for uh, undocumented agricultural workers. The pull is because America needs workers. America needs unskilled, low-income workers. We need millions of new, I mean, the state of Minnesota, where I come from, there's a tremendous labor shortage. They don't have enough people to work there. And what we really need is a massive number of work permits that would allow, I don't know, a million million, uh, people into the country, an acceleration in processing asylum claims at the border of all these people from Central America who say it's too dangerous for them to live there, we need a lot more immigration judges to to ease the backlog. And there's 10 or 15 million people in the United States who are undocumented and you know they're basically here to stay. Let's face it, uh, we need some path to legalization and residency for all those people. We need them to do the jobs they've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years. And it's really not up to the president to do all these things. This takes legislation. Congress has to do it. Congress has been trying to do it for, what, 20 years and and has never been able to achieve comprehensive immigration reform. But somebody should say, this
1: is what we need. Well, yeah. And few of those particulars that you just cited would be addressed in this bill, which is still hanging over the Senate without actually coming to the floor. That is to say, uh, increasing staffing levels to do some of the things you just said at the border. But no, I mean, on the whole, uh, this is correct, and it's not. It's actually not the Mexican population that is now, you know, clustering on the border. It, it's more not just Central American, but Venezuelan, and actually, you know, from uh, from other continents as well. So, uh, it it really is uh, an issue that required grappling uh, with earlier uh, by the Biden administration before it got in such deep a hole. You can imagine. I can imagine ways in which Biden turns around some of the perceptions uh, that go against him on the economy. The border is, is, is a harder issue uh, to, to turn this around. Uh, I mean, the economy is something that can be, can be and has been addressed by federal action. Absent federal action, though, given the, all the factors that are causing people to try to get into the United States right now, which you just listed, this isn't an issue that's e- really easy uh for any uh anyone to control unless um, you have support uh from the White House, you know, under someone like Trump for simply closing the border, uh which as you suggested would not work wonders for the labor shortages that the uh, the country is now experiencing.
0: On another front, we should talk about some of the issues that could work for Biden in 2024 how can we make the rich pay for affordable childcare and long-term social security? I understand Bernie Sanders has a suggestion. It's a suggestion that's actually one you've made many times before.
1: Bernie recently uh, introduced a bill co-sponsored by uh, Elizabeth Warren and, uh, and, and Chris Van Hollen that would deal with the ridiculous level of uh, chief executive pay, CEO pay. I think it's something like a uh, tax uh, excessive CEO pay bill. And what it does is it looks at the ratio between CEO pay and uh, for publicly listed corporations and the pay of their uh, median worker, uh, which is something that the SEC has begun collecting Uh, since the passage of the Dodd-Frank bill, which authorized it to do that. And of course, that ratio, which was about 20 to one in the 1960s, is now about 300 to one. I mean, it varies depending on who's counting what, but it usually is somewhere between 250 to one and 350 to one. So let's just say 300 to one. And what the bill would do would raise corporate income tax by one half of 1% if that ratio exceeded 50 to one, and then by a a full percent, if it exceeded 100 to one and so on up to uh, 500 to one, which certainly there are any number of large American businesses, uh, certainly those in retail and warehousing uh, that uh, have that kind of ratio. Uh, it may not be, you know, the most easily administered tax, but I think it's a great campaign issue. Uh, you know, and, and you're suggesting,
0: as I understand it, that CEOs <clears throat> have not really been doing 20 times as much work in the present decade as they did in the 50s or 60s.
1: No, I mean, if, uh, uh, if they want to make the case that they are 20 times better <laughs> than the CEOs uh, who ran America's largest businesses during the period we now r- widely regard as the, the post-war decades of broadly shared prosperity. They should be made to make that case and the public should hear it because the public kind of gets this at an intuitive level, but r- r- very few uh, actually existing Americans can, can cite the, the ratios and how much this has changed and how much this has changed the American economy on both ends of that ratio, you know, with a, a small percentage soaring and, uh, you know, if not the 99%, then uh, at least by those standards, uh, the vast majority of, of Americans left behind.
0: Let's tax excessive CEO pay. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold.
1: Always good to be here, John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener talking about politics, thinking about the left. Next up, California gets one step closer to universal health care by expanding coverage to all low-income residents, regardless of immigration status. For that story, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. Of course, he writes regularly for The Nation. His work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone. He's written many books, including The American Way of Poverty and The House of 20,000 Books. Last time we talked here, it was about his cover story for The Nation, the small-town library that became a culture war battleground. We reached him today at home in Sacramento. Sasha, welcome back.
2: It's so good to be on the show. Thanks for having me on again. Well, first, let's talk about the problem, the
0: big picture of health care for the poor in the United States, maybe starting with obamacare
2: yeah so if you go to obamacare in 2010 america had this massive problem and the problem was sort of multifaceted so on the one hand there were an awful lot of people poor people mainly who just didn't have health insurance they either didn't have a job and they didn't qualify for medicaid medical or they had a job but the job didn't come with health insurance so that was one problem the second problem is a lot of people who had health insurance didn't cover pre-existing conditions so they'd get sick And then it turned out, well, sorry, you're not actually covered for this particular ailment or this particular medicine. And so you had a lot of people with health insurance who were still getting huge bills. And one of the biggest problems, which is a problem of not having a sort of nationalized system, but one of the biggest problems was we got an awful lot of undocumented people in this country, many, many millions, about 12, 13 million people. And none of those people were covered by any of the state health insurance, um, state insurance system. So the Obamacare, Affordable Care Act comes along and it doesn't solve the first two problems, but it at least makes a dent in them. It expands the ability to get coverage. That's number one. And the second thing is it makes companies cover you for pre-existing conditions. So you had this sort of effort to bring in a lot of poor people and a lot of sick people into the health insurance system. And that was good. But one of the compromises that was made to get it passed was that no federal system would cover or touch any undocumented residents. And actually, a lot of the federal systems exclude documented but non-citizen residents. So you have this huge gap in coverage, especially in a state like California, which has got a huge number of immigrants, both legal and undocumented. So that's the sort of situation post-2010. And what I was writing about is the sort of effort in that 15, 14, 15 years since then, to plug those gaps in California.
0: California's part of Obamacare includes Medi-Cal, health coverage for poor people. There's more than 15 million people in in California's Medi-Cal system. Only three states have a total population larger than that. Over the last several years, California expanded coverage to include children, in poor families, including the undocumented, as well as young people up to the age of 26 and older people, people older than 50. They already had coverage before this year. The news that you have written about for the nation is about the new situation since January 1st in California, was that everybody else, those Adults between 26 and 49 who'd been left out ever since the beginning of time finally got coverage regardless of immigration status. Explain why this coverage of the undocumented is such a big deal and such a politically fraught issue in America today.
2: What, what happened in the years after the Affordable Care Act? It, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, almost one in five Americans, not quite, but almost one in five Americans were completely outside the health healthcare system. They had no private insurance. They didn't qualify for any of the myriad federal systems, the Veterans Affairs, um, medi Medicaid, Medicare, and so on. So you had this huge pool of people, including vast numbers of kids who, when they got sick, either didn't go to the doctor or they waited and they went to the emergency rooms, which had to see them, but would then bill them. And sometimes those bills were recoverable. Sometimes they weren't. The affordable care act creates conditions where more and more people can be brought in. And one of the ways it does it is by um, expanding Medicaid eligibility, which States had to opt into, but an awful lot of States did opt into that and they got federal subsidies for doing so. And there were various other mechanisms to bring more and more people into health insurance systems. Um, one of the other ways to do it was states were to create these insurance marketplaces with subsidized private insurance. So California going into 2010 had about a national average for uninsured. It was a, about 18%, I believe, of Californians were uninsured. It created what was called Covered California, this very expansive marketplace, which would provide affordable in- private insurance for people who weren't being given coverage by their employers. So they were They were earners, they were too affluent to qualify for Medi-Cal, but they weren't being given private insurance and they couldn't afford to buy on the marketplace. So Cover California gave a series of options for subsidized entry into the private marketplace. And it depended on what your income levels were. And the point being that it created a system that made it more possible for an increasing number of people to buy into insurance at an affordable price. So that was one way of lowering the numbers who were uninsured. The other way was they expanded MediCal, which most states, especially Democrat-led states, expanded their Medicaid systems so that you would have more people eligible, um able- bodied adults being a case in point, people who in various other times and locations didn't qualify for Medicaid. So those people were also now brought in through the expansion of the Medi-Cal system. So that reduced the gap further. There were then all these efforts made to bring children into the insurance system. Now, not every child in California is covered, but the vast majority of children now have access to some kind of health coverage. So that limited it still more. The huge remaining group was the undocumented. And in California, because there are, I think the estimates are a couple million undocumented people, maybe more. If you have that many undocumented people, you're never going to get down to anywhere approaching zero uncovered. You're always going to have a well of people who lack basic coverage. And that's a public health issue. It's, you know, on all kinds of levels, that's bad. So over the last few years, healthcare advocates have really focused their energy onto getting the undocumented covered through state medical. Now, the federal government won't pay a penny. That all comes out of state money. And it's quite expensive. It's several billion dollars a year. But California has made that commitment. And so, as you said, at first they covered children and young adults, then they covered older undocumented, and now they're covering everyone. Now that still doesn't get us to universal coverage. There are still holes in it. A couple of other points
0: about this. One of the best things about what California has done is that the expanded coverage is automatic. People don't have to do anything to get this. They don't have to fill out an application. So... As of January 1st, in California, all of the poor and the working poor, regardless of their immigration status, get health insurance. And this covers not just care when they get sick or when they get injured. I understand that the California system includes preventive care services. California, of course, is the bluest of blue states. How does does the health care for the poor in the undocumented, compare to a big uh,
2: red state, for example, Texas? Well, I'll answer that in a minute, but let me back into it by saying California is a blue state, and it leads the way with a group of other blue states. So sort of where California goes, it's a fair bet that many other Democratic-led states will follow. So you, you have this sort of situation now where the big blue states, California, New York, Illinois, have been pushing very, very hard for an expanded healthcare system that includes one or one or another coverage for the undocumented. Smaller blue states are now following. The red states have gone in the opposite direction. They're clamping down on undocumented access to any kind of any kind of social safety net. And states like Texas have resolutely refused to expand their Medicaid systems. So Texas is a scandalous situation. It's got double-digit uninsurance rates for children. You know, imagine that a a society as wealthy as Texas, which has been given the opportunity to expand healthcare to cover low income children. And it says, no, we don't want to provide routine doctors visits. We don't want to provide routine vaccinations. We don't want to provide mental health coverage for kids. What kind of a state does that? Well, the answer is a state like Texas, which also at the same time prosecutes people for getting abortions threatens to send doctors to prison for performing abortions, where the state Supreme Court said a woman whose life was at risk unless she got an abortion couldn't get that abortion. I mean, you know, Texas's attitudes to health exist somewhere between the Middle Ages and maybe the 17th or 18th century, but it's hundreds of years behind what most modern democratic societies are.
0: Getting back to California, we said that the expansion that went into effect on January 1st is moving towards being close to 100% coverage so that all residents will have health insurance regardless of immigration status. How many people are, are left out? How many working age Californians are there without health coverage in California, do we think, this year?
2: In California, despite all these expansions, you still have two to two and a half million people. The estimates are don't have coverage. And there is a problem there that any patchwork system that isn't a nationalized system or isn't a universal system, any patchwork system, it plugs a lot of the gaps, but then it always leaves some. And so one of the problems is you have a lot of independent, independent workers who don't have a stable job with stable benefits. Who may be young and they don't see why they should buy into insurance, or they may be older and they do see why they should buy in, but they're too affluent to qualify for subsidized insurance, and the insurance rates they're being quoted are you know ten or twenty thousand dollars a year, and so there are tax penalties for not having insurance, but sometimes people choose to pay the tax penalties rather than pay ten or fifteen thousand for the insurance coverage, so. That problem remains, you still have people who for various reasons either choose not to or can't afford to buy into the marketplace. And as long as you have a marketplace based health insurance system, that's going to remain a problem. I think, you know, no, no state in the country has got to 100% coverage, but you can approximate you can get as close as you can, you can expand the subsidies, you can expand the incentives. You know, I guess at some point you can extend, expand the sticks, the the penalties for not getting health insurance. But there are ways you can encourage more and more people to get the insurance. Um, But again, as long as you have a patchwork quilt system, it's not going to be truly 100 percent coverage. I don't think the measure of California's success or failure here is whether it's got to 100 percent in the measure of California's success or failure is whether it's doing way better than other states given the current parameters of the health system in in America. And I know, you know, the California Nurses Association and various others have been pushing for years for single payer universal health coverage in California. And we may get there one day, but that's not where the political debate is at the moment. And as long as the political debate at the moment is, you know, how do you use public options? But within a private system, you're still going to have some people who fall outside the scope of coverage.
0: Now it's time for your Minnesota Moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Undocumented immigrants in Minnesota will be able to get health insurance coverage through the state's uh, low-income health insurance marketplace, which which there is called Minnesota Care. The Minnesota system starts a year from now, January 2025, they will be able to do what California has done as of January 1st, 2024. Minnesota was able to do this because in 2023, voters gave the Democrats control of both houses of the state legislature as well as the governor's office. Governor Tim Waltz was reelected. This is what we call a trifecta. Let us note that it took a trifecta in California to achieve this
2: as well. Yeah, I think the Minnesota lesson is it takes a trifecta Anywhere that the way the Republican Party currently thinks about healthcare and about immigration and immigrants, it doesn't allow any room for a human humanization of the undocumented. Now, you know, you can have a legitimate policy argument. What do we do about people who come into the country without status? You know, how how generous should the asylum system be, et cetera, et cetera? But it is a reality that there are several million undocumented people in this country. And it is a reality that many of those undocumented are children. And it's also a reality that if you essentially make it impossible for those millions of people to have access to health care, in addition to making it more likely that those individuals will get sick, you make it far more likely to trigger a public health crisis. Because if you have a lot of children who can't get vaccinated because they can't see a doctor, or a lot of people who may have a persistent cough but they never get a tuberculosis test, or a lot of people who may or may not know that they have an STD or HIV AIDS, if you have diseases like that, that are going untreated, undocumented, and unmonitored, that's a public health risk. So however you look at it, whether you look at it from an empathy angle, or whether you look at it from a public health angle, excluding millions of people from any kind of healthcare coverage is as counterproductive as you can get. So, you know, if I were advising Republican state Politicians on this, I'd say, look, you can have your opinions about undocumented immigration and what to do about it and how to secure the border and so on. That's one debate. But untangle it from the second debate about what to do about healthcare for the people who are already here. Because at the end of the day, nobody wins. Nobody wins if public health emergencies are allowed to fester. California is actually being extraordinarily pragmatic in expanding healthcare to the undocumented, as is Minnesota.
0: Momentous achievements in healthcare reform led by California. You can read all about it in Sasha abramsky's report California Gets One Step Closer to Universal Healthcare. It's at thenation.com. Sasha, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. <laughs>
0: Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about Franz Fanon. His two books, Wretched of the Earth and Black Skin, White Masks, made him a huge figure on the left, not just in the 60s when they were published, but in the era of Black Lives Matter, when his shadow looms larger than ever. Now he's the subject of a magnificent new book by Adam Schatz, It's called The Rebel's Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Frantz Fanon. Adam is U.S. editor of the London Review of Books, and his writing appears in the New York Times Magazine, The New York Review, The New Yorker, and elsewhere. He was also literary editor of The Nation. Last time he was here, we talked about his first book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, John. I never knew much about Fanon's life and always thought he was Algerian, but in fact, he came from Martinique, the French island in the Caribbean. You call it a backwater of empire, but you say it was a stroke of luck to have been born there in 1925. Why was that?
3: It was a stroke of luck because even though Martinique was on the surface a quite isolated place, a small place, a parochial place. It was also uh, a small theater of, of history. For one thing, Martinique came under Vichy rule uh, in 1940. And so Fanon, as a young man in his teens, observed the, the tyranny imposed by Vichy and the way in which Vichy revealed another side of France, not the France of liberty, equality, and fraternity, but a profoundly racist France. Martinique was also, the, was also the site of an enormously creative revolution in black thought known as Negritude. That movement had started in Paris. Uh, one of its founders was a man named Aimé Césaire, a poet and statesman who became a mentor to Fanon. And Césaire and his wife, Suzanne, also uh, a very gifted writer and critic of colonialism, uh, were key figures in this revolutionary movement. And I think the other reason I would say that it was a stroke of luck is that when you grow up in a small place, it gives you a kind of hunger to move beyond mm-hmm. the island. And that's precisely what Fanon did when he was 18 years old and he offered his services to the, Fre- the Free French Forces and left Mar- Martinique in a very clandestine and dangerous fashion and ended up ultimately in a training camp in Morocco and from there to France
0: where he became a war hero. Fanon didn't start out as a writer. He went to medical school and became a psychiatrist. What did he think about what we might call the romantic left-wing view of mental illness as a source of visionary truths and valuable perceptions? I mean that's an idea
3: that you know we associate with thinkers like uh, like Foucault in his Madness and Civilization to some extent with the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan whom Fanon read when he was a medical student and also with the anti-psychiatry movement led by figures such as R.D. Lang um, and Fanon was sympathetic to the critique of psychiatry and, and and ultimately to the critique of things like hospitalization. He was you know radical in many of his perceptions but he drew the line when it came to the idea that madness could be this visionary authentic mode of perception and i he he regarded it as a um as a pathology of liberty that was his phrase and i suspect that coming from what had been a sugar colony coming from a country that had been uh, essentially a creation of uh, racial capitalism um founded on on color distinctions, Fanon could not bring himself to embrace, much less celebrate, a mode of perception that meant one lost any kind of self-sovereignty. Fanon believed that uh, to be free, you had to have some kind of self-mastery. And that's precisely what um, a mentally ill or insane person has relinquished. And and I think also it was um, in large part because he worked with mentally ill people and he saw how painful an experience it was for most of his patients. He was a, a deeply sympathetic doctor. Um, he mm-hmm. often spoke of how one is humbled before the ill.
0: There's a thrilling moment in your book when Fanon decides to leave France for Algeria, December 1953, to take up a job as director of a psychiatric hospital there. I always thought Fanon's move was a political act to join the movement for national liberation. Apparently, that's not true. No, it was not. The, the The war
3: broke out, I think, about 10 or 11 months after his arrival. He had gone there to become the administrator, the director of the blida Joinville Hospital on the outskirts of Algiers. And... Uh, uh, this was actually not that un- that unusual for people of Fanon's background and formation. The French Empire would send sim- quote-unquote assimilated or integrated members of the black professional class in the West Indies to its newer colonies, places like Algeria or um, some of their African colonies. Um and where they were to serve essentially as examples of the glories of French civilization. And uh, it certainly wasn't Fanon's intention to be an advertisement for the greatness of France. He, I think, had few illusions at that point because of his experience in World War II, where he had um, come up against the racial hierarchy in the French army. But um, he did not go there uh, to undertake a political project. He'd had thoughts earlier about perhaps doing doing his medical work in Senegal, But he ends up in Algeria, and the rebellion breaks out 11 11 months later, and Fanon wants to join it as a
0: soldier. You say he needed little convincing to side with the FLN rather than with the other groups on the left, the communists or the Catholic left, even though the FLN was, in your words, brazen and reckless and authoritarian with a penchant for settling problems by violence and even though in the beginning their targets were mostly other Algerians rather than the French army or police. And even though they were a small group without much success at winning popular support in the beginning. So why the FLN? Well, that was the very beginning, and
3: I think you know. I mean, I you're you. I do say those things. I also say things that are rather more favorable toward the FLN. I mean, the FLN is many things. It's a uh, it's a it's a very heroic group of young men who have been members of another Algerian national liberation organization who became impatient with its with its leader Massali Hajj, who uh, one of the founding fathers of Algerian nationalism, who was not willing to take up arms. He didn't think the time was right for, for the armed struggle. And these young men thought that we really needed to start now. And they did, even though very few people actually knew of their existence. Now, this is the precisely the kind of thing that would have attracted Fanon, because Fanon was drawn to these, these grand radical gestures and to acts of heroism. And Uh, The FLN, uh, when it announced itself on All Saints Day, November 1st, 1954, was unknown to most Algerians, but it showed a streak of audacity that would have been appealing to someone like Fanon, who after all had left Martinique with a similar kind of audacity and joined the Free French Forces. Um, Courage and heroism were qualities that he admired. It's also important to recall that when he when he when he starts to work with the FLN and to provide a sanctuary for wounded fighters, is exposed to a current within the FLN that is actually quite progressive and open and inclusive. He was in the area known as Wilaya Four. Uh, there were six Wilayas uh, in Algeria, um, and uh, the fourth Wilaya um, was known for its open outlook for its more egalitarian notions about gender relations, and for its some um, embrace of socialism and Marxism. So the people that Fanon was meeting in the Algerian resistance were very attractive. And it was really only when he got to Tunis um, in 1957 that he began to discover the other face of the movement, the face of the Algerian exterior. But he stays in the movement, and I think, you know, my book is partly about the shift from being a rebel to being a revolutionary bureaucrat and the kinds of sacrifices that Fanon had to make.
0: Ratchet of the Earth was written and published in 1961, that's more than 60 years ago. You say the book created what you call a lasting myth of the Algerian Revolution, Myth uh, is a word that means different things to different people. I'm sure you chose it carefully. What, what does it mean here?
3: Well, I think that the, the central myth, of course, is the idea that the Algerian revolution was won through violence and force of arms. Violence was, of course, important to the Algerian revolution, or the I think, more properly speaking, the Algerian independence struggle. But the Algerian independence struggle also won because of its uh, remarkable diplomats um, in the UN. These uh, more kind of middle class nationalists who were members of the GPRa, the the Provisional Government of the Algerian Republic, and uh, these these diplomats were um, able to push international opinion toward the inevitability and desirability of Algerian independence. One of the people uh, they convinced uh, early on was JFK, who gave a speech um, in 1957 in protest of uh, France's uh, continued rule. And at that point, he was just a senator, not yet president. He was he was just a senator. The other aspect of the myth to which Fanon contributed, I think, in in Wretched of the Earth, as significant a book as it is, is the idea that Algeria's independence struggle was this transformative revolution you know that would result in a kind of sweeping transformation of all relations in the country and I mean it's a very appealing and exciting idea i think that the the actual history is is much more complicated
0: the first chapter of wretched of the earth has a title that is a single word violence One of the most famous lines in the book is translated as, for the colonized, violence is a cleansing force. You say that's not quite right.
3: No, it's not. Uh, Fanon did not write that violence was a cleansing force. He wrote that it was disintoxicating. While Fanon was an advocate of armed struggle, above all for a country uh, like Algeria, uh, where colonialism um, had installed itself through acts of terrifying violence. Anti-colonial violence was a counter-violence. So although he is a supporter of armed struggle, Fanon's also a psychiatrist. He's writing as a psychiatrist and, and he has to be read carefully because it's not always easy to tell the difference between the prescription and the diagnosis. And when he's writing about violence as a disintoxicating force, he's writing about the initial stages of a rebellion against colonialism in which the subjects of colonial rule, who had been forced to look at themselves through the eyes of the colonists, who had been denied the opportunity to express their aggressive instincts, finally, they're able to overcome that passivity the despair that it produces and to act upon history and to take on the, per- the the group that has been subjugating them. And his argument is that this results, at least temporarily, um, in a kind of disintoxication and overcoming of that colonially induced lethargy. As it happens, Fanon was also very clear-minded about the lasting after effects of violence on the minds of the colonized And those effects were uh, far less um, appealing. So there's also this tension in The Wretched of the Earth between his, uh, in some ways, positive account of violence on the minds of the colonized and his very somber assessment of the long-term effects of violence.
0: Fanon was a psychiatrist to the end. The last chapter of Wretched of the Earth is titled Colonial Warfare and Mental Disorders. And you say it seems implicitly to offer a rebuttal to the opening passages of of the book. What is this rebuttal? Well, the the opening chapter on
3: violence asks us to imagine that through violence, the colonized can recreate themselves, can develop new souls, can become new humans, uh, possessed of power, um, capable of self-mastery, cleansed, if you will, although he doesn't use the word, of colonial complexes. And yet in the last chapter, we read about the psychic devastation of a nation. And of course, Fanon places principal blame on the French, because without French rule, there never would have been a need for a rebellion in favor of independence. But he also writes about acts of atrocity carried out by the liberation movement, and about the impact that it has on those fighters who are plagued by terrible nightmares, who break out into sweats when they you know, see people who remind them of people they killed during the war. And uh, you don't get the sense of a people who have been reborn in the act of violence, but of a people who are going to have to wrestle with this for the rest of their lives. Now, I'm not suggesting that Fanon regrets the armed struggle, he sees it as a kind of tragic necessity, but the heroism of that first chapter is at the very least tempered by that final chapter.
0: Over the many years you've, you were writing this book, Fanon was alive primarily on American campuses in the movements for decolonizing their own schools. but. Since you finished the book, Fanon's ideas seem to have come to life in the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. You you wrote an LRB essay about Israel's war on Gaza in which you recall Fanon's description of the colonized person. What did he say? Well,
3: what he says is that the colonized person is a persecuted person who dreams constantly of becoming the persecutor. And Fanon believed that this feeling was an inevitable product of, of colonialism, but that in the course of struggle, uh, uh, the movement of the colonized would have to overcome those early desires for revenge and what he called anti-racist racism and hatred. He said these, these qualities were entirely understandable given the centuries of oppression that the colonized had lived under. Uh, but that hatred and the, the justified desire for revenge could not nourish a liberation movement and could not allow it to succeed in the end. It's understandable that some of the people who've written about uh, October 7, both those who have condemned the October 7 attacks as, as unimaginable uh, acts of terrorism, and those who have contextualized them or even defended them, as, a, as anti-colonial uh, warfare, anti-colonial justice. I think what both those uh, observers miss is the, the dialectical nature of Fanon's writing on colonial warfare and the psychiatric nature of those writings. Um, Fanon today has been widely vilified as a kind of founding father of modern terrorism and at the same time treated as this almost angelic hero of anti-colonial warfare, he's neither. He's a supremely incisive analyst of what goes on uh, in these struggles. We can only guess uh, what Fanon would have said about about October 7. Fanon uh, was clearly troubled by certain kinds of anti-colonial warfare and we know this because in one of his books he condemns what he calls the almost physiological brutality deployed by our brothers caused as he puts it by centuries of oppression so on the one hand he's understanding it on the other hand he's clearly troubled by it even if he is generally supportive of of armed struggle. I mean, I think that you can find both arguments in the work, but I don't think that he would have been surprised uh, by the attacks. And I don't think he would have been surprised by the ruthless and brutal response uh, of, of the Israelis. Uh, he regarded colonialism as defined by what he called atmospheric violence. And he believed that anti-colonial warfare would produce a reaction that would lay bare the violent nature of an oppressive system. And this, of course, is what we have been seeing.
0: Fanon died shortly after the publication of Wretched of the Earth. He was only 36. One of the biggest shocks of his life is that he died in the United States. What did he call it? He called it the country of lynchers. And how did this happen? What happened was
3: that Banon, after returning from a uh, rather daring reconnaissance mission um, in Mali, trying to set up a southern front for the uh, Algeria's Liberation Army, after returning from that mission, he was ill, and he was diagnosed with leukemia. And it so happened that stationed in North Africa was uh, an American uh, named um, Ali Isselin, a member of the Central Intelligence Agency, who had developed uh, sympathy for North African independent struggles. The Americans by now understood that France would not remain in power in Algeria forever. The Algerians were likely to win the war, and they wanted to make a goodwill gesture uh, to the FLN, who would be ultimately the country's new masters. And so uh, they arranged Uh, for Fanon to go uh, to fly to Washington for treatment in the fall of 1961. He protested, he was not pleased to be going to the United States, but ultimately the decision of the FLN leadership in in Tunis prevailed, and uh, he ended up dying in a hospital in Bethesda, Maryland.
0: One last thing, your acknowledgments include one I've never seen before. You thank a group of incarcerated men at the Eastern Correctional Facility in New York State. What is that about? Well, Bard College,
3: where I teach, has an extraordinary program called the Bard Prison Initiative uh, that was created by a man named uh, Max Kenner. Um, And I taught a a seminar on Fanon to a group of about 15 or 20 uh, incarcerated men uh, while I was doing research on this book, and uh, I was deeply impressed by their dedication, determination, and curiosity about Fanon's work, which they applied in various ways to their own condition, and not always, and often in ways that you would not really um, expect. I mean, there was, for example, a an incarcerated man who uh, was a white Irish guy. Who recounted the one time that he'd been outside the prison? He was in a hospital receiving treatment, and uh, when people in the hallway uh, became aware that he was a prisoner from a high maximum secu- from a maximum security prison, they began to look at him differently, and he felt what he called the kind of the weight of the carceral gaze. He felt it in a way that he'd never felt it before. And when he read Black Skin White Masks on the, the white gaze, the gaze that whites bring to bear when looking at black men, uh, he felt this pang of of recognition. And he wrote a quite inspired paper on this. He was one of many. And uh while working with these men who uh had been incarcerated in some cases for decades, who had become accustomed to the mm-hmm. The, the, the burdens and difficulties of being in confined spaces, I experienced a sense of just the vitality of Fanon's work. Fanon uh, was writing before the end of the Cold War um, about the West Indies, about Algeria, and yet this is work that somehow continues to speak to us. It, uh, it resonates in so many profound ways. It has a, not only an analytic power, but a visceral power. And uh, that experience fueled the writing of this book.
0: The book is The Rebels' Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Frantz Fanon. The author is Adam Schatz. For me, it's the political book of the year. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.